morning, Salt Church. Hey, we are so excited. Hey, welcome, welcome. What do you think of this new setup here? It's pretty sweet, right? <laughs> hey, guys, we are so excited to be with you to worship our Savior. We're going to start out singing today. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. Sing praise to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's sing together.
morning, we're going to be back in the book of Malachi. And as I was thinking through worship this morning, I was reading through Malachi, and the, just the word trust kept coming up for me. God's people trusting in God. And I remember um, when I was a little girl, I remember my dad saying during family devotions one morning, it's like, Christianity comes down to two words, trust and obey. If you trust someone, you will obey them. If you trust someone, you want to follow them. Trust is everything. I remember also when I was a little girl, we used to go to a pool as a family and we'd all be swimming and I was always scared to jump in the deep end. And my brothers would come out and be like, jump, Jenny, we'll catch you. And I was like, yeah, right, there's no way. And other people would come out and they would say, Jenny, jump, I promise, I'll catch you, I'll catch you. But if my dad would come out and he'd look at me and he'd say, Bubs, that was my nickname, you're welcome. Bubs, trust me, jump, jump. And I would do it. And even though I was scared, I would do it because I trusted him and I knew who he was. It was my dad. I can trust him. This morning, we might be asked things that are hard for us, that are scary for us sometimes to trust God and we don't wanna do it. But when you know who God is and you know what he's done for you, you'll jump and you'll do it and you'll obey. And so this morning, we wanna sing a song called Trust in God. And be reminded of the God you serve, the God that you trust as a believer. If you are a believer, this is the God we put our trust in.
Good morning, Salt Church. I'm so glad that you're here. My name's Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors. And we're going to have Burke come on up here and join us here in a second This with Jenny, my wife. I'll let you know why they're up here in a moment. Let me first start and say welcome. If you're new here, if it's your first time here, thanks for coming. Thanks for checking us out. Um, we would love for you to text that. If you're comfortable with that, we would love to reach out to you, answer any questions you might have. But we so feel honored that, that you're our guest this morning, and we have 
an info central downstairs, kind of a new location for that, but would love to meet you and help you take your next step um, with Jesus. We're all about that here um, at Salt Church. Hey, if you're a regular, you kind of feel like you're in a different room maybe because you are. This wall was blown out just uh, just this past week and kind of reorienting the stage. The next couple weeks, we're going to be trying some new things and kind of reconfiguring. Um, but, but the question is why? Why spend thousands of dollars blowing out a wall, ordering hundreds of more chairs? Why? And I think maybe it comes down to something Nick said. I just met Nick. Sorry, Nick, for maybe this is Nick's last time here since I'm calling him out. But <laughs> no, I just met him this morning and I said, Nick, what's the Lord doing in your life? And he said, I think God is using me to draw other peoples to Christ. And I said, that's what I want to do better at. I just want to talk about Jesus more and draw other people to Christ. Do you think that just a couple hundred seats more is going to be enough for what God wants to do in Gainesville? I pray it's not. But maybe it will just be a start as we welcome more people, as we start telling people about our greatest treasure in Jesus, as they are drawn to the community of God's people and to Christ himself, just maybe a couple hundred more seats as we jam them in, not only for community, but also for students who are on their way, maybe that will at least let a couple hundred more know about the greatness of Jesus. Guys, let's think forward and pray forward with tremendous vision. We don't have a new space yet. We are asking God for a new building. Until then, we're gonna keep stretching this out, and it's pretty cool that Rabbi Jonah Zinn of this place said we could blow out one of his walls. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that. You know, I had to just stop there, but I'm like, how much of it can we blow out? Can we just, can we have the whole building? Um, guys, this summer, we have been meeting new parts of our staff members, and uh, I actually work a lot with the worship, tech, and arts crew, and Jenny, my wife, and Burke are a critical part of that. And I want you both to know them and hear a little bit about what they do as they serve. I'll tell you this, because they won't say it of themselves. They are two of the most hardworking servant leaders who actually inspire a lot of other leaders. There's a lot of times you don't see them leading because they're raising up so many other leaders. So it's cool to be around such capable and competent servant leaders who draw others out into meaningful, meaningful parts of ministry. But yeah, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves and kind of tell us a little bit more what you do. Well, my name is Jenny Sabino, and yes, I, thank you. <laughs> uh, I get to work with the community side of worship. And honestly, one of my greatest joys is finding people who are skilled to lead and getting them on stage and letting them use their gifts for the Lord. It is a great pr privilege. One of the things that I do during the week is uh, plan a lot of the sets. I plan the teams that will be leading. Um, I work with different people to help plan the services and then even working through special events. And so, yeah, that's what I do. And I'm just honored to be able to serve in this way. And I know Burke is just chomping at the bit to get this mic, so. No. Um. <laughs> Uh, my name is Burke Shaikuski. I moved here from Iowa four years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
started volunteering, came on staff last year, just managing all the technical production. Does the microphone work? That's probably because I set it up. Um, <laughs> I also manage the uh, the team. So we got Ryan mixing back there, landing on slides, and all the other people. I see Raymond over there. What a guy. Um, my wife is also uh, back there, kind of in the back row. Her name's Jamie. We met at Salt Church, so if you think you're going to find the love of your life at Salt Church, you might. That's crazy. Um, yeah, that's me. Just one more reason to keep coming back. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, guys, God has gifted us with, with leaders, who different worship leaders, different communicators all the time who lead us so well into God's word and then into worship, and I'm so grateful for them. Let me pray for them and pray for Jordan as he comes on up. A couple things to let you know is we have today in Malachi, we close out Malachi next week. Next week will be our last 10 a.m. service. And then come August 20th, hopefully we'll be done with our remodeling by then, but come August 20th, we believe a lot of students will be coming back into Gainesville. And on that day, we will go back to two services, 9 and 1045. So just a couple more weeks at this 10 a.m. service. Yeah. Okay, I totally forgot to say, September 24th, we are doing auditions. So if you have any interest in being a part of this team, we desperately need musicians and people who will jump in and use their gifts. So September 24th, if you're interested, go online to saltchurch.com and click on the worship team serving area. So thanks. Sorry, I forgot that. Yeah. All right, let me pray for us. Oh, God, our eyes are on you. You are the great God of the scriptures. Lord, you have called people to yourself and you are using them. Jesus, you long for us to be a holy people. Thank you that our holiness and our joy aren't in opposition. Lord, as we grow and become more and more like you, Jesus, our joy will go through the roof. I pray, uh, even for what Nick shared with me that just so resonated in my heart, God, I pray for all of us. I pray that everyone who even hears me praying, God would say in their hearts, use me. Use me to draw other people to Christ. Lord, may seats fill up around us. May voices sing the praises of our God. May lives be changed. May eternities be altered forever because you used each of us. God, I pray for students, for children, for community, for elderly, for people in Gainesville, for the state of Florida, for the nations who don't know you. And I pray that people here who claim the name of Christ would understand that you have invited them onto your mission. You haven't set it up to where you would just sprinkle blessing on our life. You have pulled us into something much greater. God, may we hear from you today through Jordan, and may we be more clear on how to join you in your mission. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to start off playing <clears throat> a little game. We're going to play a little game of true or false. You call students are like, that's not a game, that's a quiz, and whatever, it's a game quiz. Um, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna give you a couple statements. I want you to, you don't have to shout these out loud, just think in your mind, are these statements true or are they false? Here's the first statement. The more you give to God, the more he gives back to you. True or false? How about this? If you follow Jesus, he will give you financial blessings in this life. True or false? Mostly true, mostly false. Have you heard statements like this before? 
Are they true? Well, the, the passage that we're going to unpack today, I believe, is the key that's going to unlock the answer to those questions. Uh, but in order to insert and turn that key, we have to really dive deep into what was going on back then so we can apply it to what, how, how we should think about it today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and, and turn to Malachi chapter 3. That's where we're at. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, so go, you can go to Matthew, just the book prior to that. And we've been in the book of Malachi for a little bit now. Uh, you've probably noticed by now that you need to brace yourself a little bit for this book. Uh, God is rebuking his people. Why? Well, verse 7 actually gives us the answer in our passage this morning. Why, why is he rebuking his people? Well, verse 7 says this. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. So since the days of your father, so big picture flyover of like the whole Old Testament is that God set apart a people for himself called the Israelites. And in the book of Genesis, he established those people. And then in the book of Exodus, he freed them from slavery and, and, and made them into a great nation through King David. Well, after that, though, they really started to turn away from God and turn towards sin. And that led to them being exiled and captured by the Babylonians. Well, in time, the Babylonians were then taken over by the Persians. And what the Persians did is they let the Israelites go back to their land. So they weren't under as much oppression. There was a little bit more religious freedom and they were back in their land. So in some ways you might think, well, all right, well, maybe at this point in history, things are looking up for the Israelites. Well, it's just not the case. Um, their worship for God had essentially died. It was apathetic. There was no zeal, no passion, no love for their God. They had drifted into all sorts of sin. And what Malachi is, is a wake-up call for the Israelite people. So what needed to happen? Verse 7 tells us the answer to that as well. It says, return to me, God says, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Well, a man robbed God, yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. So we have seen this Q&A format between the Israelites and God. And what the questions and subsequent answers have been telling us is really the state of Israel and their heart. And it's not good. How, how can we return to you, they ask. And God says, how about you start by not robbing me anymore? That's, let's start there. Now, how were the Israelites robbing God? I think the first thing that had happened is they had forgotten a critical principle that all money in the world is God's, and they were called to be good stewards of it. I think they'd forgotten that. But on top of that, in, a, in the covenant God made with Moses, he told Moses, commanded Moses and his people to give 10%, a tithe, back to God. Why? Why was that so important? Where was that money going? Well, you have to understand how the Israelites operated under the Mosaic law. The tithes back then were used to support the priests and Levites. And when they, would, when, when they would take in the tithe, they would then distribute it for sacrifices or needs or emergencies or whatever popped up. Uh, so it was crucial to the flourishing of the Israelites. But on top of that, the Levites and priests depended on the tithe from the people. They were the only tribe of the 12 that didn't get an inheritance. They relied on the tithing of the people. That's how God's kind of system operated. And so if the people stopped giving, it ruined the whole system. Everything was ruined. 
And that's what was happening. They were robbing God and subsequently robbing his people. And what we've already seen in this book is that the Israelites were offering up lame, like animal sacrifices to God, which showed their half-hearted worship. And that half-hearted worship had now bled into their final financial generosity. So instead of giving their first and their best to God, they were essentially just giving God their scraps. Now, you might hear all that, especially if you're new to Christianity, and go, hold on. So... Is God just kind of money hungry here? Is he just like, give me my money and we'll be good? Like, just give me the money that I'm, like, what's going on here? I, I would say no. I, I would say what's going on here is much deeper. This is a heart issue. Their hearts were all messed up. And yes, God is correcting the tithing problem, but the tithing problem was a symptom of a deeper issue. The heart issue that was going on is they no longer feared God. They didn't have a zeal, love, and awe for him. And that lackadaisical, wicked heart had manifested itself into selfishness with their money. Um, I think it was a year or two ago now that um, I got news from my parents that my dad was having um, heart issues. He was out um, uh, cutting wood, uh, chopping down trees uh, in the back 40 uh, at, our, at my parents' place, and, um, which is like my dad's happy place, to have a chainsaw and be cutting down trees. He loves it. Um, but all of a sudden, he started to get chest pain. And he's, he ignored it for a little bit. He's a, he's a doctor. He, doctors are like plumbers with leaky pipes all the time, right? So he's like, I'll just ignore it. It's fine. But he eventually just like, had to sit down for 20 to 30 minutes, and the chest pain wouldn't go away. And they eventually went into the hospital. He had to stay overnight, had a catheterization and this whole test. And it kind of freaked me out a little bit, to be honest. Um, and thankfully, there, it wasn't actually anything going on with, with the heart. It all checked out. But my dad's a doctor, and he knows the principle. This is like a cardinal rule for doctors. The external symptoms point towards the deeper heart problem. I was just on ESPN yesterday. I saw a Jacksonville Jaguars offensive lineman had to be pulled from training camp because he was getting symptoms and had to check to see if he had atrial fibrillation, if he had a heart issue. This is just true in the medical world, and I believe the same is actually true when it comes to our money. It's an external thing that indicates what's going on in our hearts. So how we use the money that God has given us is an indicator of, our, of where our hearts really are. If you want to know where my heart lies when it comes to money, just Look at my bank account and my credit card statements. You'll find out pretty quick what my heart values. So I'll, I'll ask you this morning, what's the status of your heart? What do you love? What do you trust? What do you fear? Do you love the approval of others so you spend like crazy so that people will think highly of you? Do you love the pleasures of this world so all your extra money goes in that direction? Or maybe do you fear the loss of control? So you hold on to every penny in fear that you might actually lose it. For the Israelites, I'll be honest, I don't know what all they were doing with their money. It probably wasn't anything good. But what we do know is their hearts were jacked up and they were starting to rob God. So how does God respond to his people? Keep reading with me in verse 9. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not, um, not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. 
Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. So big if-then statement here. I don't know if you picked up on that. And this is something that Israelites would have been very familiar with. You have to understand what is going on here. You actually have to understand the book of Deuteronomy. Back in Deuteronomy, God is making a covenant with his people through the person of Moses. And in summary, in general, what God tells them is, if you obey me, you will be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. And it gets very specific on what both those blessing and those curses look like. And if you walk throughout the Old Testament, it happens. When the Israelites obey, they're blessed. When they disobey, they are cursed. And what Malachi is telling us here in chapter 3 is they chose path number 2. They had disobeyed God and they were under a curse. Now, what did this curse look like? Actually, Deuteronomy 28 tells us. Listen to this. God says, if you disobey... You will sow much seed in the field, but harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant and cultivate vineyards, but not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your territory, but not moisten your skin with oil, because your olives will drop off. So one of the things God promises in the midst of the curses is that pests and plagues will devour their crops. And that's exactly what happened here. You can see it in the language. And that's, that's a big problem back then. They depended on their crops. This was a death sentence for people back then. But our God is a God of grace, forgiveness, and restoration. And what he's doing here is he's offering a path forward. Things are bad. The land is cursed. But the solution is simple. Return to God. And what would happen if they did? God challenges them. He says, test me, try me, see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven. That's an interesting phrase, floodgates of heaven. What does that mean? What does that phrase mean? Well, the, the rest of scripture actually gives us a little bit of a clue here. Psalm 78 says this, he gave a command to the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. So the floodgates essentially opened. He rained manna or bread for them to eat he gave them grain from heaven. So elsewhere in the Bible, when the floodgates of heaven opened, it meant that there was an abundant provision of food, which is what the Israelites really needed right now. Their crops were plummeting and they needed the rain to come and the pests to go away. And what God is saying is, I am gonna open the floodgates like it's the beginning of the budget month. I don't know if any of you are like me, but when it's the last day of the budget month, I am eating cheap macaroni and cheese and hot dogs. That's what we're doing. And, but when that first day comes, when day one hits, I am like an NFL player that just signed his first signing bonus. I am like, we are like, we are hitting a huge Walmart order, restocking the shelves, coffee, upper crust, splurging at farmer's markets. That's not hypothetical, by the way, that was like this last week, August 1st hit. And uh, that was our week. We probably need to change our spending habits, babe. We've been talking about this. We'll, we'll fix it. But what God is saying is like, like the beginning of the budget month, I'm just gonna like open the floodgates of heaven but, and I will provide food for you. Now, let me ask you this. What does God mean by test me? Did you see that? Test me. What's interesting in Jesus is what Jesus says in the New Testament is don't test the Lord your God. So clearly there's like an unhealthy testing of the Lord, our God. And then like in the Old Testament here, there's like this healthy version of testing God. What does that look like? Well, it's so funny that Jenny gave an illustration a little bit ago, because that's exactly what I had in mind. I, I'm a dad, you know, we have a son that's almost two, and we've been playing this new game called Trust Fall, you know, and, and we just started playing it on the bed one day. He was towards my feet, and, um, and it like shocked me the first time he did it, but I put my arms out, and it was like he was a two-by-four plank, you know, and he just like poked to the top, and he was like, 
you know, swan dive, you know, and he's just full weight into my arms. And he's now, like, now this is our routine. We do it every night. We do the trust fall right before he falls asleep. And, you know, what's interesting is that as I'm like looking in his, into his eyes and he's looking into mine and my arms are open, my posture is very simple. Test me. See if I won't catch you. What God is saying here is trust my character. Like what Jenny was saying, he is our good father. Take a step of faith. See if I won't provide for you. See if I won't catch you. God is giving them another if then. If they return to him, then he will reverse the curse. If they give back to God, if they fill the storehouses again, if they essentially repent, the floodgates of heaven will open. So there's a strong connection between Israel's repentance and the curse being lifted. Essentially, the ball is in Israel's court. What are you going to do? Let me ask you this question. How does all of that apply today? How do we bridge that gap? What does that look like? Does this mean that if you give God money, that the floodgates of heaven will open, he's going to give you everything you want? This is where I believe we just have to be good students of the Bible. Because if we don't, we can start wandering down some dangerous paths. So let's look in this passage. What are the similarities between them and us today? Well, both are called to have a high view of God, a rightful love and zeal for our Lord and Savior, our, our creator. Both audiences are supposed to do that. Both audiences also are broken sinners who are, who are tempted and pulled to love the things of this world more than the things of God. That's also true. And then the last thing is both audiences are called to give to God with a generous heart. So, so I could go on, but those are some similarities. What are some differences? Well, back then, they're underneath the old covenant. So before Jesus came and died on that cross, they were under the old covenant. We don't have priests in temples today, and we're not under this like blessings and curses type old covenant that they were back then. And what, in this specific moment in history, they had chosen to disobey. And under the old covenant, they were under a curse, deprived of their crops. That means God's challenge is not give me money and I'll give you a new convertible. God's challenge was stop robbing me and I will reverse the curse from your disobedience. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because I believe that there is a stream of, of beliefs or theology that will take verses like this and twist it a little bit and say things like, if you give God money, he will not only meet your needs, he will also meet all of your wants and desires. So, so give God money and he'll fill up your bank account. He'll get you that house or car that you've always wanted. Give God your money and, and he'll get you that dream vacation. Give money to God and watch the floodgates of heaven open up and him bless you financially. And what I want to ask this morning is, does that sound like the heart of Malachi 3? I don't think it does. The primary thrust here is Israel's in sin and needed to repent. This wasn't a get-rich-quick opportunity. This was an opportunity for them to repair a broken relationship with a holy God who is offering them a path forward. So this is not a passage of how the rich get richer. This is a passage of how disobedient people return to God. Ultimately, this is not a money issue. This is a heart issue. Now, I say all that, and say, although there were some unique circumstances happening back in Malachi, there are some key principles that do translate today. So what's our call today? What does that look like for us? I'm going to give you three words, like any good Baptist. Um, they don't all have the same first letter, though. But uh, three words. 
The first word is this, find, F-I-N-D, find. Has anyone um, seen the movie National Treasure? It was made, boy, there was a, like a visceral response. Oh my goodness. Uh, favorite movie over here, big Nick Cage fan. So um, Nicolas Cage made this movie in like, yeah, I think early 2000s. And uh, it's a story of this guy named Ben Gates. And when Ben was little, his grandpa told him about this treasure beyond all imagining. And this treasure, I mean, nations and leaders fought over this treasure. And, and this treasure kind of like passed hands, but then eventually vanished. And then this group called the Freemasons like gathered it, recovered it, and like hid it somewhere else. But then they gave clues on how to find this treasure. It's a big treasure hunt is what this movie is. And so what Ben does is he spends his whole life trying to find this treasure. He's consumed by it. He's not thinking about anything else. All he's thinking about is how do I find this treasure? And as you can imagine, like, I don't think this is a spoiler. He finds the treasure, okay? He, he does. That would, uh, boy, that'd be a pretty boring movie if like for two hours he's like on this quest and he's like, couldn't find it, you know? <laughs> Credits roll, worst movie ever. Um, he finds the treasure. But the entire movie is about one man whose like sole devotion and focus is finding this one treasure. Now, I think the principle that comes from that is this. When your eyes are fixed on a great treasure, it's the only thing that really matters. Which means it'll inevitably consume your life and everything else just starts to fade away. Now, let me ask you this. What do you treasure in this life? What consumes you? What do you love? What do you live for? Let's hear what Jesus has to say about this. He has essentially a parable in one verse in a lot of ways. In Matthew 13, verse 44, very simple. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Now, Randy Alcorn actually made, like, made a book all about just this one verse. It was really helpful. Uh, and we won't spend uh, like a t the rest of the sermon here, but on the outside looking in, this man looks crazy. Why would you sell everything for a field? But he didn't care what everyone thought because he had found his great treasure. The treasure was worth any and all costs to get the treasure. So there was a short-term sacrifice for a long-term reward. And what was the great treasure? Do you see it in there? It's the kingdom of heaven, the kingly rule of Jesus it's Jesus himself. He is the great treasure because he is the great and merciful king who loves us infinitely. If you ask me this question, what is the cure for the love of money? Here would be my answer. Find a greater treasure. Find your joy and your worth in the person of Jesus Christ. Hear me when I say earthly treasures aren't all evil, but also earthly tre treasures are not eternal. And when you find your great treasure in Jesus, you stop caring so much about the temporary earthly treasures. They lose their appeal because you found your earthly or your eternal heavenly treasure in Christ. It's of infinite value to you. Let me say it this way. When you are satisfied in Christ, you no longer starve for the things of this world. You can take it or leave it. So ultimately, it doesn't matter because we have Christ. He is the great treasure our souls have been longing for. So the promise isn't give your life to Jesus and he will fill your bank account. The promise is give your life to Jesus and you get Jesus. 
That's the promise. It's not a promise of financial prosperity. It's a promise of eternal presence. The gospel isn't that Jesus is some vehicle that gets you to what you really want. The gospel is Jesus is what you really want, whether you realize it or not. So, so is Jesus Christ your true treasure? Or do you actually treasure something else? I love how Matt Chandler says this. He says, Jesus isn't after your money. He's after your heart. And when our great treasure is in Jesus, it puts money in the rightful place. We begin to loosen our grip. Let me say it this way. If I have all the money in the world, but I don't have Jesus, I actually have nothing. Or if my bank account was wiped out tomorrow, but I still had Jesus, I lack nothing. Again, guys, this is the type of stuff that makes Christians look like we're on crazy pills, <laughs> right? And if you're here this morning and I sound a little crazy because you haven't found Christ yet, this is what I want to say to you. You know, in this passage, Israel asks this question, how can we return to you, God? And God tells them, he's, he's not unclear. He tells them, this is exactly how you can return to me. Spoiler alert here, they didn't do it. <laughs> They didn't return to God. So what did God do? What was his response for their lack of returning? He came after them. God opened the floodgates of heaven and sent his son, Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins, deserving the wrath of God. So Jesus Christ came and he went to that cross. And guess what? Jesus didn't give 10%. He didn't give a tithe. He gave everything for you and for me. Tim Keller says, every other treasure demands your money and your life. Jesus is the only treasure that gives everything for you. Which means if you walked in this morning and you're like realizing you've sinned against a holy God and your conclusion is, okay, now I got to start paying God this 10% because I owe him money, you are missing the point. Friend, we did not want you to come to church this morning to put money in a bucket. We wanted you to come to gaze at the beauty of the cross. We don't want you to give anything this morning. We want you to receive the great treasure. We want you to be captured by the king of the universe. So my plea is simple. Turn to Jesus. Find your great treasure in him. I promise you it leads to true joy in this life and the life to come. Find. Find your joy in Christ. Find your great treasure in him. Next word, give. Once we find our joy in Christ, we can actually give with a cheerful heart. Living a generous life is an overflow of understanding the gospel of grace. Um, that being said, I'm just going to level with you, be honest with you. It's still tough. I know my temptation towards doing like this with my money is strong. My, my heart is way more like the Israelites than I would like to admit. So I always want to fight against this. I want to press our family towards generosity. And I'll, I'll just share with you, like, this is just what we do. I don't know. Um, the majority of our giving goes towards uh, whatever local church we're a part of. And right now, uh, we're coming up on a year here at Salt Church, August 21st. So almost a year now we've been giving to Salt Church. And so we do that. Uh, we also give some money to some different missionaries, you know, both within the states and then all across the world. And then we also have this other line that we call extra giving that when needs pop up with our friends or uh, people we love or just people we've met, um, you know, we've got budget set aside where we can bless those people and love them in that way. 
And then every year, I just want to challenge my family to, to like take the next step with our generosity, to, to press outward, press outward. Now, as I share all that, I'm talking about giving. No doubt there is some tension in the room and some people thinking, there it is. There's the money grab. Saw that coming a mile away, right? If that's you, like if that's your heart posture towards, you know, God and the church, um, let me just rock your boat a little bit this morning. Um, God actually doesn't need your money. Uh, first of all, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, which means all money on earth is God's. He owns it. God is not a financial consultant. He is president, owner, CEO, CFO. <laughs> he is all of it. He owns everything. So he doesn't need anyone's money because he owns it all. Our call is to be good stewards of his money. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I'd say is Jesus promised to build his church. And I just genuinely believe he's going to do it whether you decide to give or not. So if you are giving out of some kind of like weird obligation or duty, um, I think Jesus would just look at you and go like, ah, don't worry about it. Listen to what 2 Corinthians has to say about this. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Listen to this, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Simply put, Jesus just isn't in the business of manipulation and arm twisting. <laughs> just not who he is. At the same time, I would say this, he also loves when his followers give with a cheerful heart. And I'll be honest, sometimes that joy comes before giving and, or sometimes during giving. Sometimes it happens after I give. You know, sometimes I like take the step first and then the heart follows. But typically joy just kind of like follows and accompanies giving in my life. So my encouragement to you this morning is our mission statement. You know, our, our desire is to help people take their next step with Jesus. And so when it comes to this, I would just say, identify where you're at and take the next step. If you follow Jesus and you don't know where to start, I think that 10% is a great place to start. And I'm not trying to be legalistic or weird. I'm just saying, try it and see what God does in your heart. So find, give, and finally, like Jenny said earlier, trust. Trust. Do you trust that God will take care of you? Or do you feel like, I need to take care of myself. <laughs> Let me ask it this way. Um, do you hang on to extra money as a backup plan in case God fails you? You know, I'm from, uh, from Iowa. Uh, it's really fun. We got friends from Iowa here this morning. And, uh, and in Iowa, I know a lot of, uh, I knew a lot of uh, farmers. Jeremy's not a farmer. Um, and, <clears throat> but I got like my, like my best friend from high school, his dad was a farmer. And I remember um, somebody like asked him one time if he, uh, if he gambled, if he went to the casino and, and gambled at the casino. And my, my friend's dad's response was, I'm a farmer, I gamble every day of my life. <laughs> and, and I remember sitting down with a connection group leader uh, at my last church who was a farmer and he told me how uncertain finances could be. He, he said, there's so many moving pieces. Like, are we gonna have a good crop or not? Like, is the rain gonna fall? Is that gonna happen? What's the price of corn gonna be? Do, oh, we need to buy more equipment. Oh yeah, I also gotta like pay myself. 
All of these things are moving at the same time. And he said there's just, for farmers, a huge temptation for farmers who are believers to not give to God because there's just so much instability. But what I loved as I sat across the table from this godly man was he had a settled conviction that he was going to give generously to the Lord no matter what. He was going to give his first and his best, which means something completely different when you're a farmer and that crop comes in, right? My guess is he's had some maybe unnerving moments, but he kept giving and he trusted the Lord no matter what happened. No matter what happens. I think that's an interesting phrase. I think that phrase might actually be fairly unique to the Christian faith. That's very different than like karma or give good energy out and you'll get good energy back in. That theology, by the way, has like creeped into the Christian faith where, where you say, you know, give your money to Jesus and you won't have problems in this life. Like you'll have good health and a full bank account. Like just give your money to Jesus. That's bled in. And what I am saying this morning is Jesus throws a grenade in all of that. <laughs> if you read the New Testament, what does Jesus promise if we follow his good path? Listen to this. Here's just one example. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now listen to this promise. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous for I have conquered the world. What's the promise? You will have suffering. Other translations say trouble in this world. That's the path you're heading towards if you choose to follow Jesus. But he gives another promise here. Do you see that? So that you may have peace. Why? Because Jesus has conquered the world and we are in Christ. One verse I haven't talked about in our passage yet is verse 12. God says, you know, if you repent, if you return, if you obey, then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. He's saying that the nations around you, they're going to want what you want if you choose to obey. And when you trust in Jesus, you will have what everyone wants. And that is peace. Because you have peace with a holy God and peace and rest in this life, no matter what happens. In the Christian life, the boat might rock a bit. Fair warning, it will rock. Our call is when the boat rocks, is to trust in our king. What does that exactly look like? I'll share with you personally. Um, you know, I've been walking with the Lord for a while and, and, and growing in the grace of generosity. And there have been times in my life where you know, like an unexpected ch check came in the mail. Or I heard like news of, of money coming that I wasn't expecting. And when those things happen, I just stop and I thank the Lord. And I actually have like a Google Doc now of, of, of putting those things down so I can remember in the future God's faithful, faithfulness towards me in the past. So that's happened. I will also say there's been moments where I've been in financial struggle and tension. There's problems and I'm wanting God to come through in this way or that way financially, and it doesn't happen. So what's that all about? Well, ultimately, what I will say is I am not God. God is God, but I trust in my God. And if I look back at the story of my life, he has always provided for me, even if it wasn't the way I expected or wanted. Here's my big idea for this whole morning. I'm just gonna like bring it all together and tie a bow on this. A call is simple. Find your joy in Christ, give with a cheerful heart, and trust him no matter what happens. Find 
give trust. Salt Church, God, our Father, our Heavenly Father is looking at us with arms out, arms wide, saying, jump. I'll catch you. I promise. This is not a guilt trip sermon. This is an invitation to hit the reset button on what you treasure. The burden I feel this morning is that some of you might be chasing or searching for the wrong treasure in this life. And I'm telling you, if you've been searching for a treasure to truly satisfy you, what I want to say this morning to you is you can stop searching. We have found that treasure, and his name is Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so grateful that you, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came for us, that the heavens opened up, and you, fully God, fully man, came to this earth on a rescue mission. And you gave, not some, you gave all. You gave everything. And at the same time, paid it all in our place. And so our heart should always be one of gratitude, thankfulness for the way that you are so generous towards us and the way you blazed the path for the path you're calling us towards. And as we follow you in this path of faith and trust and uncertainty at times and not sure as we take this step or that step of faith, Jesus, my prayer is that we would continue to have peace, that we are wrapped in the arms of our almighty Father, of our King and Savior. We are safe eternally because we have you. And so this morning, Jesus, we proclaim as we sing these next handful of songs that we trust you. We trust in who you are and what you've done, and we recognize nothing else in this world matters. Only you, our great treasure. We love you. We thank you for the cross, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, would you stand with us? About a month ago, I got to close one of our series in the Minor Prophets in the book of Habakkuk. Super hard, challenging passage where Habakkuk is giving his praise to God, saying that he's a stronghold even when he lacks everything. And I ended with one of those crazy Christian passages that we just mentioned where these people are rejoicing because their things have been plundered. I should have known what was coming. A month later, this is about two weeks ago now, someone broke into my office and stole thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gear. The next morning, Gainesville Police Department knocks on my door, wakes me up at 7.30, and they say, hey, somebody's broken to your office. I was like, we've had a lot of false alarms. I think you're wrong. Let me go grab my phone. And I pull up my phone, and there's Robert Rob, as we called him, walking through the studio, walking out with all of our gear. I head into the office. Paul Sabino drops everything, says, I'm on my way. 7.30 a.m., meet them there, and we're just walking into glass all over the place, trying to walk through the place, figuring out, like, what got stolen. A feeling of violation that comes over. If you've ever had your car or your house broken into, you just feel violated, right? And somebody reminds me, hey, like the gospel of God was built on the very violation of God himself where Jesus hung, hung on a cross, gave it all. And last week I come in and close out the set with this song where we sang a lyric. I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And as I heard that line, all is mine. I just thought, no matter what's been stolen, I've lost nothing. I've lost nothing.
lost nothing. God's given us so much in his son, in himself. I just want you to sing these very simple lyrics as we, we just start off as closing. Said, I just want you, God. Nothing else. Nothing else. I just want you because that's enough for me to trust you. Let's sing that.
maybe a little random, but I used to connect my phone to these old headphones. And the string cord would head up to my ears after I had invested about 15 minutes of my life unknotting that gnarly knot of Apple cord. And then this past Christmas, my kids saved up and they all went in on AirPods. And you know what? They're awesome. And something bad happened to them, but I still, but I have them again. AirPods, fantastic. But you know what? As soon as I got those AirPods, I looked back at that gnarly mess of knotted cords, those old headphones, and my thought is, anyone need some headphones? I don't need them anymore. They used to mean a lot to me. I found something way better. <laughs> Enables me to hold on real loosely to those. And I found that the only thing that frees my heart towards money is what Jordan said, finding a greater treasure. When Jesus becomes your greatest treasure, you hold on to money like old headphones. And you go, they're great. They work. They do the job. They're good. But I hold real loosely on them. I got something better. Salt Church, God isn't broke. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need our money. We need an opportunity to hold loosely onto it. And I'm telling you, when Jesus solves the heart issue and he becomes your greatest treasure, you just begin holding loosely on to all that the world finds as its greatest treasure. And it's just like knotted up headphones. They're great. They're not ultimate. May God be ultimate in our hearts. May we find our greatest joy in him. And may it cause us to open our hands joyfully with life flowing in us, with happiness, as we invest in something better than the world, into eternity, and in the changing of lives around us. That's worth living for. May God make us that kind of church, one step at a time. Thank you for coming. Next week, one more 10 a.m. service. We close out the book of Malachi, and we look forward to what God has for us this fall. You have a great rest of the day. We'll see you next Sunday.